Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. That was kind of a louder than usual intro. <laughs> well, we just got to turn it up. Yeah, you that's true. I mean? That's true. This is like Freedom Rock. Yeah. Is that Freedom Rock, you... man? Well, then turn it up, man. I don't know if half of our listeners would know that reference. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my God. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, here's a nice lesson for people. You used to buy music off the TV. You would dial a oh. phone number. And so the, the infomercial would come on the TV and they would have like Freedom Rock featuring Leonard Skinner. And it would be like, bam, you know, oh, Sweet Home yeah. Alabama. And so it's like just a mixtape. Literally, it was a mixtape. But there was this classic TV ad where one of the dude heard like some, some of the rock and he's like, is that Freedom Rock? Well, then turn it up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Freedom Rock, you're doing. I mean, I guess the the you know the um, corollary for my generation was Kids Bop, right? Was like the you know where the kids sing the hits, the hit music. Yes, yeah, yeah. Those kids, kids like today have so freaking no clue what we're talking about. Like, yeah, I tell people that I have a Pandora account, and they think I'm ancient. You know, well, let alone yeah, that's really that's like first gen. <laughs> Exactly. But I tell you, Sloan, I've, I've committed so hard to my thumbs up and thumbs down over the year yep. that I feel like I have an investment in this damn platform. So that's, I, why, I that's like, why I do that. I'm the same way with SoundCloud, which is kind of like, I mean, it's also first generation, but kind of like a little bit Grammy or hipster uh, yeah. than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never leaving because I followed so many weirdos. Um, but I also, I did something amazing just now. I have to boast. What's yours? Um, I unlocked the gold standard in Mario Kart. Oh, that's <laughs> incredible! Which Mario Kart are you playing? I this think there's Mario a few, Kart. Right? Mario Kart Eight for the uh, for the Switch. Um, okay, I have that if, one. My son and I play that one. Yep. So if you get eight, if you get all uh, like gold star things in the Grand Prix in on Mirror Mode, you get a gold cart, which they call the gold standard. Uh, <laughs> which and, like, ties to the free money podcast because <laughs> well i mean like so like it makes you rethink the whole mario universe right <laughs> like totally at least it's the currency that you're collecting in the mario universe <laughs> exactly like you know the, all of that you know the the you know kind of chaos and and bother is because they've sort of stuck with this outdated monetary framework uh <laughs> Exactly. For those that don't know, the gold standard it was a monetary framework. <laughs> Care to explain, Slot? Oh yeah. So for a long time, like uh, you know, the idea was that uh, you know a currency, say like the Spanish, um, what was it? The, it wasn't the peseta. It was the Spanish mm-hmm. money unit. Um, real. I don't even know. What it yeah, was. I think it was the real. Uh, the um, is sort of like directly related to the value of the gold that the co- the government has in their treasury, right? So. Um, you know, if you want to create more money, uh, or, you know, kind of contract, contract the money supply, you have to actually go and physically take gold out of the ground. Um, you know, which is like kind of an interesting theory, you know, for some people, but it sort of makes it so that you have no control over your, your monetary cycles. And it creeps Uh, back every once in a while when people are like, you know, worried about hyperinflation and things, you know, in, in moments like this, where we're yep. literally just printing money and throwing it, you know, not literally out of helicopters, but it feels like that. People start, you know, hearkening back to the gold yes. standard. 
and they are the not referring. They are not referring to Mario Kart. But I'm proud of you that you Thank dusted you. off the old Mario Kart skills and gotten into it. Yeah, I, well, you know, I was worried for a second when I got it that Mario Kart as a whole was like a psyop uh, to like you know <laughs> influence us all to love the gold standard or something. Uh, but what's up with you? Did I tell you? Oh, well, before we do that, for me, Mario Kart kind of changed my relationship with my wife. We played Mario Kart uh, way too much in college, which is where I met Courtney. And is this uh, the '64 version? I, think or I the... was. Yeah, but it had to be the '64. And uh, you know, it still did the thing where, like, if you got too far ahead, they, it would give you bananas, and if you were in the back, you'd get like the super powerful shell. So, like, there yeah. was a an automatic way of trying to like rebalance, but I was probably better than her. And I probably talked too much <laughs> crap. And, and so like after one game, she vowed that she would not play video games with me anymore, that it was going to lead to our breaking up. And I would love to tell you 24 years later that we got over that, but we didn't <laughs> we still don't play. We still don't play each other in video games. And it goes all the way back to Mario Kart. So there you go. I, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a foundational game of the modern canon, um, you know. But like, I mean, obviously, that's the biggest <laughs> development of the week. Uh, it, oh yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> Maybe we should jump um, to actual news. Yeah, I yeah. News. I mean, like our our friends at Goldman Sachs had a, had a uh, an interesting week. I admit, I never thought that they would have to pay up for the behavior. Um, that they were obviously, you know, responsible for with this Malaysian one MDB uh, debacle. Um, the news out this week is that Goldman has agreed to pay three point nine billion to the Malaysian government, and uh, that's going to be painful for them. You know, I don't care who you are. Yeah, that's like ten percent of revenue. Yeah, that's a real a real number. You know, for just for background. The, the accusation was that Goldman Sachs bankers helped some shady um, actors at 1MDB uh, raise about $6.5 billion from, you know, in the form of bonds. They took some kind of, something like a $600 million fee for doing it. Um, and then that money that Goldman raised, which I was like just blown away at the time, they got that big of a fee. But at the t- you know later on we learned that one MDB was just a massive fraud and like something like four and a half billion dollars was stolen out of it, um, you know like U.S. Treasury has been involved, FBI has been involved, like it, it's just been this massive thing. I think there's actually like a book out and a Netflix special if you're actually interested. Anyway, <clears throat> Goldman has to pay up, and to me that's like crazy. You think of you think of them as getting away with just about anything. You know, it's like in the financial well, yeah, crisis, and like, nobody went to jail. Yeah. And usually with these settlements, like, I, I mean, I have a philosophical thing where like, when does a fee really become a license? Right. Like, I mean, if the fee for a parking ticket is like 30 bucks and the fee for a parking garage is like 10 bucks, you know, it's at some mm. level you kind of you, you, you kind of go, OK, well, do I just take a shot on this? Right. Um, yeah. And I think that that, that sort of mentality has really uh, been observable in financial services where people do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but this is the first fine I can think of that actually seems to impose some pain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it, if you're trying to disincentivize bad acting, this is going to do that. 
this is going to push, you know, banks and all kinds of financial services providers just to be more ethical, you know, and, and this kind of brings us back to a lot of the things we've been talking about recently, which is like, you know, the world seems to have normalized this abnormal, um, activity. We've got COVID, we've got Black Lives Matter, we've got all these things. And and then here you have like the big vampire squid of Wall Street actually getting nailed for unethical yep. behavior. And and so if you're an investor and you were actually like, look, I, I believe in my ethics. I'm not investing in Goldman because I don't like the behavior that I see there. Well, you just lucked out. I mean, well, you didn't luck out, I guess, technically. You you your risk models actually did the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, let's hope that you, you know, when you actually expressed your your beliefs to whoever's implementing your portfolio, that they sort of interpreted them to mean that, you know, that you wouldn't get involved with this company for this reason, right? Um, which yeah. is always kind of one of the big thorny issues with ESG. Yeah. And, you know, on this issue, exactly, like you're seeing more and more, this, this is also news this week, you're seeing more and more platforms get launched to try to help investors translate these types of, you know, fears and concerns about companies across a range of industries and geographies into investment beliefs or investment policies. So like HSBC announced this week, they're launching some big new data platform to help investors um, understand the value of ESG in their portfolios. I think it was a month and a half ago, S&P announced the launch of their new ESG uh, data business. And so it feels like the, the world is kind of coming around to this topic and that we are finally going to get solutions to what I've described as the last mile problem of ESG, where it's fine and good to get all this ESG data but then if you can begin to move it into the investment decision-making, that's the hard part. And that's really yeah, cause, cause, you know, the, the final piece that's going to be so hard for everybody to crack. But we're getting there. Sorry to get... Yeah, I mean, because, like, of Go course, ahead. the people providing the data so often are the issuers themselves who have a vested interest in making themselves look great. Um, you know, so you got to have some kind of like... That's right. You know, re real thought that's happening uh, in the interpretive phase of implementation. So, like, who's good at this? So there's, there's, there's not many people who are good at this. Luckily for us, Sloan, we have somebody to call this week who's awesome at this. Oh, we do? What? Uh, we do. I know. It's almost <laughs> like we plan it now. We've actually uh, yeah. been planning these episodes. We should admit that. Um, yeah, that's true. And, yeah. and it's this, this little company in New York. It's not so little anymore. They've added a lot of assets under management, but it's called Ethic. And you can find them on oh. ethic.investments. And we're talking to one of the founders and the president of Ethic, Jay Lipman. Let's see if he picks up the phone. If he Let's knows see, it's yeah. me, he might not. <laughs> yeah, we're calling him from a blocked number, so. That's right. Okay, good. <laughs> He'll be devastated to hear it's me. Yeah. Ashby, you owe me 50 bucks. Oh. Hi there. Hey. Ashby, Jay. how are you? Good. You've got you've got Ashby and Sloan, and you're on the Free Money podcast already. You didn't even know it, but here you are. Welcome, Jay. We do it live here. We're cooking with gas. <laughs> we're cooking with gas. Absolutely. So, so Jay, we were just describing ethic and the amazing you know job you guys do of actually manifesting 
ethics inside an investment portfolio. And we were just running through a bunch of things that had happened this week, like HSBC launching a new ESG business, kind of following the lead of S&P a couple months ago. And obviously, like Goldman Sachs getting this $3.9 billion fine for unethical behavior and on and on through like COVID and Black Lives Matter and all these different things. And so we just wanted to talk to you in part because you guys are one of the leaders of actually integrating these things into the portfolio. So we're just pumped to have you. And and first off, how you doing? Are you are you okay today? I'm indeed well. I'm very lucky to be uh, very fortunate going through the situation as I know that a lot of people are going through uh, tough times. So we're very fortunate. And I think that, you know, as the volatility of the markets have started to calm, we've seen uh, a huge amount of, you know, even further interest in ESG, which obviously we've uh, been fortunate to benefit from. So I'm excited to be on the on the podcast and excited to chat ESG. Awesome. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. So the first question I have for you is, uh, it's probably a softball uh, because this is literally what you guys do. But just from a generic perspective, like when you think about everything that's going on in the world, you know, racial justice, uh, COVID, like how do these things, which many people in my world of pension funds might think of as extra financial and thus not relevant, how do these things in your world connect into investment portfolios? Uh, It's a great question. It's one that we have definitely been asked a lot in the last three or four months. And I think, you know, to kind of bifurcate it between COVID and racial justice, I think on the COVID side, what you've been seeing is a lot of investors saying, you know, as an investor, you know, as I look at my portfolio, what in my portfolio may actually, number one, actually contribute to further pandemics like this in the future? And what can I be doing in my portfolio now to mitigate Mm. some of the damage that this pandemic is having? And so on the former side, you know, what can you be looking at your portfolio that could potentially mitigate the risk of things like this happening again in the future? Well, one of the big topics we talk about is deforestation. So as a factor, if you look at your portfolio and you look at uh, what kind of disease this is, it's a zoonotic disease, which means that it jumps from exotic animals to people. So fundamentally, anything that puts exotic animals in close proximity to people is going to increase the risk of these diseases, making that jump from animals to humans. And deforestation does exactly that. And it actually does it at a, hu- at a, at a, at a you know global scale. So any industries you're invested in that accelerate that process are going to contribute to that risk. So things like palm oil plantations, beef grazing, tobacco, these are the kinds of things that individual institutional investors can be considering. Uh, and you know, as we look at the kinds of things in the portfolio that could potentially you know, uh, mitigate the damage that COVID is having uh, you know, as the pandemic continues to spread, we can look at things like worker protections, you know, which companies in the portfolio are actually providing protections for the essential workers that are on the front line, who's providing the PPE, who's providing the paid sick leave to the 34 million Americans that don't actually have paid sick leave through their employer, through government services. Uh, there's other factors like, uh, you know, a lot of our uh, investors prioritize gender equity and, and women's rights in their portfolio. And as a result, have had a real focus on uh, gun violence through COVID, because as you know, you may know, uh, due to the shelter-in-place orders, due to uh, a lot of the stay-at-home mandates across the world, there has been a dramatic spike in domestic violence. And domestic violence disproportionately affects women as they're being forced to stay home with domestic abusers and violent partners. And if there is a gun in the home during one of these violent events, it's five times more likely that event 
will be fatal. And so that's just on the COVID side. And sorry to go into so much detail, but uh, these are the kinds of things oh, that investors it. can consider. Yeah, this is a detail, uh, have, detail positive zone. So have love jump detail. on the, uh, the, uh, the, the racial justice side as well, because we've been obviously having a lot of focus. Before on you do that, side. before you do that, deforestation, doesn't that help prevent forest fires? Oh, what, are you having a few of those over there, Ashby? I'm just curious to hear you respond to that ridiculous question. But <laughs> the reason I ask it <laughs> is because you can't believe the kinds of things I have to listen to when people are making cases against using this type of data. And so I thought I would ask you another insane question. Um, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but <laughs> you can jump into your racial justice part. Probably akin to just getting rid of coral reefs uh, being an easier way to prevent coral reef damage just because there's nothing to damage. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a policy that sounds like it could come out of Wall Street. Um <laughs> We call it like it is here, but so ju- jumping, you can you can fold your the racial justice piece under the next one because the next question I had for you is really around how ESG and sustainable investing gets integrated into the decision making. Is it you know is it about minim- minimizing risk? Is it about building a fuller picture of an asset to invest in? Because that, in our experience, is the is like the huge question um, facing all these asset owner investors that are kind of the the investors we're talking to here, where you know they 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 can't solve this last mile problem of ESG, which is they got all this data and then they're trying to figure out how to include it. How do you see this as getting included in the investment decision? Well, the first step that we see individual and institutional investors actually somewhat bypassing is, you know, no, no two groups have exactly the same values. No two groups define the issues in exactly the same way. So the first step has to be to actually agree upon what you're trying to prioritize from a sustainable basis, what you're trying to prioritize, what you actually define the values to be. And if it's Climate-oriented, it could be climate-oriented, it could be a combination of climate and racial justice. But once you prioritize the issues, then you can utilize that data in a more effective way to define which companies are you know, worthy of including in the portfolio and those that are not. And then, obviously, you know, the integration of data is crucial to our business. And what we believe to be the kind of pivotal point in sustainability investing and really mainstreaming it is having the most possible data and informing fundamentally which companies are aligned with the values that you have defined and which have not. And that happens very early in our process once the mandate of de- uh, values has actually been defined by the investor. So, you know, I- I'm sure many of our listeners are absolutely shocked to hear that uh, there are companies out there that perpetuate uh, various injustices, racial, environmental, uh, or I'm sure, you know, the market being what it is, they'll come up with new ones before too long. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what sort of power do investors actually have over that? What are the levers by which they can exercise control? Well, I think that the, the power of capital is, you know, the reason that we're all here. It's the reason that we all believe there's hope in the capital markets to make a big impact. And that is fundamentally that, you know, within the capital markets, if we can change the cost of capital for businesses that are acting irresponsibly, that do not align with the values, that are perpetrating, uh, you know, racial or uh, climate injustice, that we can change that cost of capital by divesting from those businesses. And, you know, a question that we do get very often is, you know, is that actually having an impact? And I think, 
as an individual asset manager, you know, whether it's having an impact for our clients directly through our products is probably less of the question as to whether it's being had at the large scale because we are not seeing divestment. We are not seeing uh, sustainable investing in the billions anymore. We are seeing it, as I'm sure you're aware, in the trillions. And that's when this starts yeah. to actually have impact as investors recognize that by you know divesting from the companies that do not align with their values and being part of the movement, which is now in the trillions, it is having a, an impact. And you are seeing companies waking up and realizing that you know, their, their free pass to act however they please is now gone. So basically, we deprive the bad actors of oxygen um, and, you know, in so doing, stifle them uh, and, and kind of uh, make them less able to, to do the bad things. But, you know, I wonder if like if I come to you and I say um, I want to divest entirely from the prison industrial complex, which as a, a, you know, as an individual, maybe, you know, if we're sitting outside and just chilling, we would both think that we had kind of an understanding of what that is, maybe. But as we try to translate it into securities, it, it seems like it might get a little vague. How, how would you actually go about doing that? No, it's a, it's a good question because it's all systemic, right? It's all connected. And I think that to look at the prison industrial complex, you could quite easily say, okay, well, we'll remove the private prison operators, of which there's two primary providers, right? And you could easily just divest from those. But that's not really solving the prison industrial complex because private prisons are only a small segment of that. And that's why you need data. That's why you need information that goes deeper than the surface level. And so that's why when we look at an issue like the prison industrial complex, we actually look far deeper into things like which companies are utilizing prison labor in their supply chain, right? Which companies are actually profiting from this systemically racist and unjust criminal justice system that exacerbates the racist inequities in this society, right? So not only are those companies using that very cheap prison labor that is a direct product and beneficiary of a racist system, but which companies are also selling their goods and services to public prisons, right? So beyond the private prison system, which companies have actually built a model of business that is built to benefit from this systemically racist system? And if you are built to benefit from that system, you have a vested interest in actually perpetuating it and keeping it in place as the status quo. So which companies, for example, are selling the transportation systems, right? Who's selling the gates? Who's selling the telecommunication systems? Like which systems in prisons are actually being used to charge prisoners $10, $15 a minute just to call their families while they're incarcerated, in some cases for unjust reasons because of someone's race? So we can look way beyond the simple uh, surface level information of which companies are private prison providers and look much deeper at those kinds of issues. Yeah, I, I love the idea of that broad uh, cross-section of participants and the thing being starved of capital um, and, you know, I guess getting some consequences associated with, you know, being not the greatest actors. But, you know, I wonder, like, for something uh, like climate change, how the approach you might take would differ. Well, I think that with, with climate change, it, it is systemic, but it can be slightly more linear. And I think that, you know, much like the COVID question of, which companies in the portfolio may contribute to this being exacerbated versus which companies are going to be dramatically impacted by this, we can actually relate that to the climate question. And we can say, all right, let's bifurcate this. Which companies in our portfolio are exacerbating the climate crisis? Which companies are contributing to elevated 
carbon levels and greenhouse gas emission levels? Which companies are accelerating deforestation, which has a huge impact on climate because you're removing the carbon sink and you're releasing that carbon back into the air that's been stored there for you know millions of years? And so we can look at the companies that are contributing, but on the other side of that bifurcation, we can actually look at which companies are going to be most ad- adversely affected by a rapidly changing climate. So as an institutional investor, you want to be really considering this latter component because this is about risk, right? This is about having information about which companies are building factories in flood-prone areas, which companies are, uh, are going to be at massive logistical um, risk because their supply chain is going to be damaged by you know, more severe storms or floods or droughts, right? Which companies are utilizing uh, a lot of fresh water more than their peers. And as a result, when there is a water shortage, which will become inevitable, they're going to be the most significantly uh, damaged and, and, and um, mm-hmm. hurt by that, right? So this, again, is about understanding the pre and the post, but also uh, having the information to inform which companies are really going to be affected most by those things. Jay, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it. I have like 22 follow-up questions that I would love to have the time to dig in on, and maybe we can we can have you back at, at another time. I, I think not the question I'm going to ask you now, but I want to really at some point understand how you think about the value of the data you're bringing in. You talked about you know we're bringing in all this different data, and we need to um, you know we need to use that to get a richer and fuller picture. I think one of the things that we see in our world of, of pension funds and sovereign funds is like alternative data. The first thing that's really hard to know is like, where do I use it? What's the value of it? And, and so I'm just curious, you know, do you, do you have kind of a rule of thumb for thinking about the data that you use and, and, you know, whether or not it's worth the price you're paying for it? Well, I would say that data is our most valuable asset. Right. And as a result of it being the most valuable asset, it's what we are willing to spend the most money on. Um, because, you know, you have to be able to inform which, uh, you have to be able to inform from multiple different data sources around the various issues you're covering, which companies do and don't fit the values of the investor. And I think that you also have to bring in institutional quality data because what, you know, you have definitely seen and, and you've seen through the life of ethic is that there has been a proliferation of uh, really high quality data providers, but also uh, slightly more niche and esoteric data providers that, you know, the, the sources of those data uh, aren't always as easy to validate. And so everyone's guard has to be somewhat up as to which data sources you incorporate and which you actually utilize. And that's why we obviously have such a big team focusing just on that role of, you know, um, what kind of data is coming to market and what is actually utilizable in an institutional portfolio construction um, or you know, uh, way. Isn't it interesting that like the future of ethical and sustainable investing kind of looks and feels like hedge funds? It's, you know, like if you think about like the investors that have huge data and technology platforms, um, it's like you guys, you're putting the data, you know, to good work. And then there's the hedge funds that fine, maybe they're not all bad, but you know, those are the, the places that have, um, huge data operations. Okay. The, the next question I had for you, you were talking a lot, um, about like how investors are having an impact. And you mentioned the word divestment. And just hearing you talk about divestment reminded me that like 
gosh, if we went back like six or seven years ago, the standard refrain we would give you about divesting from stuff is that it was like literally just about managing your stakeholders, that it didn't change the cost of capital for the thing you're divesting from. And frankly, it probably wasn't worth the effort, the governance pain of going through the process of doing a divestment. Because as a pension fund, usually you can only do one or two innovative things a year. If one of those things is divestment, well, what good is that? So, but then you mentioned, you know, we had Jean Rogers on a few weeks ago and she, I think she mentioned we have 70 trillion of sustainable capital out in the world. And if that, if all that 70 trillion started getting serious about divestment, holy cow, maybe divestment's real. Yeah. 70 trillion and growing. Like maybe we actually need to, to rethink like the standard, like baloney we say about how divestment isn't worth it. Uh, if we got $70 trillion going to act. So so that's a comment for you, Jay. Then the question for you is like, we've had all this wild stuff over the last three months, four months. Can you think of a moment in, in this period where um, investors have actually managed to prompt some positive change with their, you know, with that weight of capital behind them? Yeah. I mean, look, we, we the, the world has changed so much in the last five or six months, but, you know, just before, the world somewhat went on pause and the, the focus truly went to COVID. I think that we were seeing a huge amount of momentum with the climate movement and we were looking at various industries. We were seeing the first companies in each of these industries actually announcing that they were taking real drastic carbon measures, right? And this is, you know, we saw this in the technology industry with one of the leaders in that industry actually coming out and announcing that they were going to go carbon negative, you know, and actually. Uh, mitigate all of the carbon exposure right. since the founding of the business. And that is a huge step because not only does it put a line in the sand as to what the standard can be, not just going carbon neutral, but actually that introduced that negativity. But it's also saying to their industry, like, okay, well, we're responding to this. Now, all the rest of the leaders in the industry have to respond to that as well. We believe that was based on investor pressure. But you also saw this in industries like the airline industry. Right, with the first company in the airline industry, a leader in that industry announcing they were going to go carbon neutral, which was a big shock to everyone else in the industry, again, setting a different standard for the other operators in that industry and kind of announcing to, I think, the investors and the investment community that this is going to be the new standard for everyone in our industry, which is going to be the first mover to it. So it's a response to uh, investor pressure, but it's also a preempting of investor pressure by saying, we're going to become the leader here. And therefore, when you're looking at this from a sustainable capacity, you know that we are going to be on the the, the relative uh, positive edge of this when you make that investment decision. You know, like as you as you describe all this sort of stuff, it's I mean, it's amazing uh, the changes that you're talking about. But I'm also thinking about like how many individual QCIPs, how many individual securities you must have to, you know, be able to assemble these sorts of data, you know, kind of streams about, right? And, and I can't imagine that what you're encountering is at all standardized, at all easy to find. Um, you know, so I, I wonder when, when you look under the hood of, of, of ethic, you know, what does the input look like and what do you do to get it to output? No, I mean, thankfully, I am not the one doing that combing. Uh, and I can assure you the team would never let me anywhere near the actual system that we utilize. Um, but I, I don't have the, the intelligence to keep up with. I, I just don't think I'd be able to get a job at Ethic if I applied now. Um, <laughs> you know, and Ashley can attest to that. No, no, no. You would get a job. 
since the early days of Ethic, we recognized there was going to be this proliferation of data. So instead of using more of a static model where we say, okay, we're going to work with a data provider and utilize the scores they provide, we said, all right, let's build our own custom architecture that allows us to actually bring in multiple sets of data and to unify it in our own system. And so what that allowed us to do was to uh, you know, inform across thousands of different securities, across you know, hundreds of different variables, the kinds of issues we cared about. And then we were able to constantly supplement that with new data sources. And so when we do something like run an analysis through our health check tool or portfolio construction or impact reporting, we're actually utilizing the data across thousands of different securities and multiple hundreds of variables to inform the exact thing you're talking about, which is, you know, how do these different companies that are across industries and across these esoteric issues across E and the S and the G, how do they factor? And again, that has to be automated. Otherwise, it would just be far too much data to do on a manual basis. And so I think that's something that we invested in really early that we spent a long time building, but have been really fortunate to have because our, our hypothesis early on was that data would proliferate. And that's exactly what has happened. So a really good um, example is actually the prison industrial complex, right? So, you know, there wasn't necessarily uh, full information across the major data providers uh uh, on the prison industrial complex around supply chains, around which companies were selling their services to, you know, public prison systems, and so we partnered with uh, the American, uh, the, the AFSC, um, and that actually provides us specific esoteric data on that issue that we can then utilize to inform that specific topic. But again, that's fed into the model so that we can actually utilize that more broadly at scale for multiple of our clients. So ho- hopefully that captures your uh, your your uh, question. Jay, it's awesome. I mean, in hearing you talk about it, it, it just, you're just describing the future of investing. Like, that's my hope, right? That like, that what you're describing, what, you know, I, I joke that like, you know, y- you guys are to ESG, what hedge funds are to alternative data. But the reality is, reality is like what we're hearing is like mature, professional, technologized investing sounds like this. It's data-driven. It's like really smart analytics. And yes, like you and I probably couldn't get jobs in these places once, you know, the technology is fully onboarded. Um, but, you know, it, that's okay. Like they're going to need social butterflies and, and that's what we'll, we'll become. Um, and so it, it's just really inspirational to hear what, what you guys are doing because I really do believe you know, as, as I think you guys have as like your little catchphrase that like the future, all, all investing should be sustainable investing. And, and I think you just like laid out a pretty um, coherent description of what that can look like. So thanks for taking some time with us, Jay. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having, for coming on. No, uh, chaps, I appreciate it as well. And uh, yeah, uh, Sloan, Ashley, thank you for having me. And then, uh, yeah, let me know if there's ever any other episodes in the future I can be assistant, uh, be assistful on. Absolutely. All right. Jay, have a great weekend. Stay safe. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Yeah, chat to you soon. Bye. That's awesome. I mean, like, you know, it's funny. We, we talk about this as kind of revolutionary and new, but I definitely have been to asset managers like, five, six years ago and had them talk about all the crazy stuff they're doing to like, you know, read the tea leaves on price movements and extract technical, uh, you know, trading systems. And that doesn't seem controversial to anyone, even though it's insane. I know, but it's interesting the the difference between what ethic is doing and what a lot of those asset managers that are data 
kind of data empowered, we'll call them, is around the time horizon. So the, the hedge funds are doing things that are from smaller than a second to maybe a year. And, and so the, the signals they're extracting from the alternative data are around generating alpha over those short horizons. What I think an ethic is doing, and, and that's you know the sustainable approach, is using a lot of the same data and techniques and approaches, but just extending their time horizon. And, and so for something that in a hedge fund context may be socially you know, neutral or even negative, if you take the ethic side, it becomes socially constructive because now instead of trying to price, you know, some behavior of Twitter followers in a stock, they're trying to price how consumers are reacting to Black Lives Matter and, you know, racial equality. And all, and all of a sudden it's like, it starts to feel like the capitalism I think we all want. Um, yep. And so that, that's what's pretty cool about their project. So I wish them luck. You know what I realized? The question I wish uh, I had asked him, and maybe you know we need to find someone to ask this, is if ESG is getting more mainstream and starting to affect the pricing process, how come the market's doing what it's doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, like, but it's just the classic. Uh, oh, no. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's time for dear ashby oh yeah yeah you ready i mean this it's is the segment time. oh wait and i guess you know before we get to this i should just beg everyone listening to give us a rating on the app store right like oh, yeah i think we have four now yeah they're all five stars ratings. which is pretty cool thank you that oh. you know that that feels like a long distance hug uh in case you're wondering oh. um what you're doing by, by it's like we that, that kind of comes through the ether and we just sort of feel it as we're walking around so yeah. so please do it it's very nice when we when we see those those that we just kind of look out the window and you know take a deep breath and think to ourselves yeah that's nice <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. sip we sip our cup of coffee and we think mm, that's, that's the good stuff right it. there <sighs> that's the good stuff out of our portable alpha mug. Oh which yes, you can get in our Etsy store. <laughs> exactly on yeah, right at the Free Money Atelier. I mean, I guess while we're shilling, we should shill the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> Let's shill it all. Yeah, um, all sorts of good stuff. OMG WTF uh, t-shirts. Um, Ashby, you got some of those. Um, I do. I don't have it on now, but I I have it in my drawer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually. Good. And there's uh you know some underwear which I uh, I plan to put uh, on sale so that we can just get them out there you know the free money branded underwear out into the marketplace as much as possible. Um, so anyway, uh, first question this week is it's summer. Uh, what are your beach yeah. read recommendations? Oh great! I uh, I I love this one because it gave me a chance to go back through my Goodreads ratings, which I do. Um, the very first one that everybody, absolutely everybody who's made it through to this point of the podcast needs to read is called The Technologized Investor. Mm. This is fucking awesome. And I know this because I read this book uh, after I wrote this book. Um, so that's, there's I, I, no. I, I haven't read the book yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> what the frick? <laughs> yeah, so I wrote a book. It was published in April. It's hard to get the press out when you're stuck in your house yeah, because of yeah. the COVID. 
Yeah, we've so only talked on. like 15, yeah. or 15 or 20 times since then. So, you know, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> you can get this on the Kindle, I believe. Okay, Ooh. so the, the, the next books that I'm going to say are, um, are legit good books that kind of tra- changed my world. Uh, the one that I read recently, which I really loved, is Old Man's War. And there's a part in that book that blew my mind completely um, where they describe the process of transit, transferring the consciousness of an old person into a young person. It was unreal. Whoa. And so if you really like, yeah, if you really like sci-fi, Old Man's War is a, a pretty fascinating one. Um, you'll, you'll see that basically everything I read is sci-fi or fantasy. The, the second um, like real book that I would recommend is the Red Rising Trilogy. Um, it's based on Mars. I haven't heard that one. It's like a, a classist society, and it's just so damn good. It reminds me of like Ender's Game and Harry Potter in space. Um, so that one is a definite like kick it on the beach and lose yourself type of vibe. The one that I I would also say is good is uh, All Systems Red. Um, it's uh, it's all about this murder bot which is a robot that achieves consciousness and is the protagonist. And that, it's also count as alternative data. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm going to move on. I don't want to talk about alternative data. <laughs> the last one is, uh, is, is the series by Pat, Patrick Roth plus a uh, great name. Uh, and it's the name of the wind. And again, yep. if you want to get lost in a book on a beach, um, that one's a fantasy one, but it is uh, astoundingly good. Like I think I read it on a vacation and just lost myself in. So those are mine. What about that, you? That 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 last book is so good. I can't remember if I re- read the sequel or not because it's all just like one big thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's true. It's uh, true. I just started reading this uh, this book called The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, mm. um, which okay. is it's one. Uh, it was, she's a really interesting author. She tries to write decolonized fiction because, like, I mean. We have nothing in common. I'm a huge sci-fi geek too, uh, and <laughs> but like so often in sci-fi, you know, there will be like, uh, you know, the people off in the east who worship dragons or something. You know, like there are all these like yeah. kind of colonial tropes. Um, and this is about kind of this world where um, some people are born with earth, you know, changing powers like earth bending, um, and they're either uh, you know kind of worshipped or hated for that. Um, interesting yeah and my my girlfriend started you know uh reading this couldn't sleep read the read the uh the sequel on the beach next to me got it done in a day um and so i am jumping right down that that hole right now that's my main one that's awesome yeah well i got a bunch that i'm reading right now but i can't i wouldn't put them on here just right now until i know if they're good the ones i've said i know are good so read them (laughs) If I shoot, if I, if I steer you wrong, let me know. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, in that, in that case, and only in that case, is it acceptable to leave a four star rating for this podcast? Uh, (laughs) um, So the next question we have is, uh, what will the recent changes in Hong Kong's legal status, i.e., I I guess it's now uh, Hong Kong we're treating is no different from mainland China, right? Uh, There's no diplomatic relations. Uh, what will that mean for pensions? Lots of global organizations are moving their offices to Seoul. It's interesting. I, you know, I know that um, a lot of the investment community has always seen Hong Kong as you know a conduit for 
for chap- capital going into China. Anyways, right? Um, and Ontario Teachers, uh, Canada Pension Plan, probably a bunch of others out there, which I'm blanking on, have offices there. And they set up offices there because they wanted to get more exposure to the Chinese economy. And, and that was like, um, you know, an, an in-betweener type of place where they could set up and, and begin to build those portfolios. Um, you know, w- with everything that's happened, those offices are still there. They're still running. I saw in the news, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that um, the Hong Kong office for Canada Pension Plan is the only office that's up and running right now because they've managed to squash the COVID pretty well there. And so that the people in the Hong Kong office are actually going in and doing work. Um, that's so, so I guess crazy. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> they, they are going to an office. Um, yeah, like we're talking about like bending, <laughs> bending earth and doing all this stuff. Going to an office sounds like real sci-fi to me. <laughs> I know I had a Zoom call with Sydney, Australia yesterday, and the people were in an office. And I joked because they had featured very prominently um, wipes and sanitizer. (laughs) But I joked because, like, it was too close to the camera for anybody to be able to reach it. Uh, But it was close enough that I could read that that's what it was. So it was clear (laughs) it was like (laughs) they were just (laughs) – they positioned it like, yes, we're the office, but – we have these things here to protect us, even if we don't actually use them. Anyway, um, I think if you move to Hong Kong for a, a, you know to have access to the Chinese market, you'll stay. You know, you, the purpose there was to be in China, anyways. If you were there because you thought Hong Kong was a a global financial center, and you you know you sort of need to follow the sun around the world because of your trading operations, and so Hong Kong was the place you chose for whatever reason. I think you might move. Yeah. But my guess is most of the capital in Hong Kong or the investors in Hong Kong are there for China. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if, if you know, Seoul or Singapore or, you know, Kuala Lumpur or any, you know, something else kind of pops up as a destination. But that's my take. I mean, it's, you know, just as a New Yorker, I'll just luxuriate in the fact that the other supposed global financial centers, London and Hong Kong, have been summarily defeated in the last two years. You know, it's like, oh, what's the next London? Oh, what's the next Hong Kong? Who's saying what's the next New York? No one would dare. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Um, <laughs> uh, last question I have this week is, if your kid's school reopens next year, will you send them back? Ooh, tough question. I mean, uh, you had the kids on the podcast and, you know, now they're I know, <laughs> now the audience it. questions. Kids come on the podcast and everybody wants to know my parenting uh, philosophy. Look, my wife is on the uh, on the school board. So this, you know. I think if schools open, you know, we're probably going to need to support the public schools here and, and send our kids. My my confidence in saying that is that I don't think our kids are going physically to be in school for some time. Yeah, my, my, I, I'm almost I think it's official now. We are we have um, gone back to starting school virtually. So we aren't sending kids. Um, that's pretty devastating, obviously, because it's not is not a great setup as two working parents to have two kids at home trying to study virtually. Uh, but look, so if we're sending our kids back to school physically, my guess is that means we have a vaccine or we have a viable treatment that's working. I, I don't see us like with the amount of cases we have now. And just depending on when people are listening to this, like we're near peaks in California right now. Like, yeah, that we're, we're like, getting close to record cases and deaths are ticking up again. And so it's not like 
we've flattened the curve and you know things are looking good things are looking really bad yeah it's it's um, crazy like i like i mean when we we did the first podcast of the season we were talking i mean like the stuff was hitting the fan over here uh um, yeah you know and like uh, you know i guess it's that's the delay is like maybe three months and <laughs> Uh, you know, we were the first county to shelter in place in the country, I think. Wow. Santa Clara. Wow. Yeah. And and so we, in, in a way, like we did flatten the curve. But unfortunately, like that flatness doesn't mean it's gone. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that's super frustrating. Like we've all done this huge thing where we stayed at home for so many months. I mean, I, I think I'm past four months now. And yet we're still dealing with it. So I think until we get the vaccine... We're going to have a problem. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, here's hoping. Uh, well, we'll be here with you until then. And, and and who knows? Maybe when the world restarts again, we'll keep doing free money too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll need to free that money. Yeah, exactly. Thank you all so much for listening to us. And uh, we love you very much. We love you. Bye. Bye. Rain on them.